0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr.
1: David Hanscom. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show is Dr. Bernie Siegel, world-renowned surgeon and best-selling author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. And Bernie, welcome back to the show. Bernie is a best selling author. He's written a famous book in the 1980s called Love, Medicine, Miracles. It's a book I read early on in my career that changed the course of my career. And what I want to talk about this half hour with Bernie, most of you know him already pretty well, really well, is that he and I, he figured this out a lot earlier than I did. But somehow, about halfway through my career, I figured out that listening was really critical. And we started to see people with chronic diseases get better, including chronic pain. Which is considered untreatable. Then, the last five years, I started to understand the neuroscience. Then I've watched the business of medicine flat out refuse us to allow us to talk to our patients because we're not being productive. In other words, we're not doing procedures that are profitable. And unfortunately, a lot of the procedures that we do are actually documented to be ineffective. The volume goes up, and the problem is out of control. So, I'm going to be fairly blunt on this podcast that taking away our capacity to talk to patients borders on malpractice. It is malpractice because it's actually in of itself. not psychological. There are lots of reasons why it makes a huge difference, but not talking to the patients is actually damages the patient. And that's what I want to talk about with Bernie. So Bernie figured this out many years ago. And that's, where we're going to finish the discussion on this about what's happening in modern medicine. And so Bernie, thanks for coming back, but I want you to make a comment that we took on the last podcast that you said no. had a doctor was spending 15 minutes instead of 12 minutes and his pay was docked? Yeah.
0: Well, because they said he was taking longer with each patient than the average in the department. So they didn't want to pay him as much because he's seeing fewer patients. And I said to him, tell them to evaluate how your patients do versus how the other patients are doing. Because if yours get better, then those few minutes really end up being many hours and days less because right. they don't have to keep coming back. And it's, it's the listening that makes a difference. Right. Um, Helen Keller, you know, I look to the people with trouble. Helen Keller's deaf and blind from the time she's three years old. Why wasn't she mad at God and everything else? And she writes beautiful books about healing. And one of her comments was, I've heard of the stars of the rainbows or the play of light on the waves. These I would like to see, but far more than sight. I wish for my ears to be open. The voice of a friend, the imaginations of Mozart life without these is darker by far than blindness. Wow. She didn't include a doctor in there, but she probably should have because, you know, if the doctor isn't listening, you don't respond. You don't get better when they're blocking you and not listening to you. So I learned to listen to patients and go, mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm. And I get thanked for, and I mean this, I didn't say a single word to this young woman. At the end, she said to me, You've been such a big help. That's the greatest conversation I've ever had with anyone. And I busted out laughing because I hadn't said a word, just mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because I knew she'd hear herself and I'd get credit for what she realizes the solution. No, that's
1: that's brilliant.
0: Each other, yeah.
1: So here's what's happening in medicine right now. And again, my wish is to pass on a legacy that Bernie started. It's actually been around for centuries, is that doctors lacked technology for centuries, and all they could do was sit with patients. And there's a very famous editorial written in 1927 by Dr. Peabody, Francis Peabody, who acknowledged that you could have stomach pain, everything could be wrong, a woman's going home to an abusive relationship that's where the symptoms are coming from so his famous quote was that the essence of care is caring for the patient right and so he wrote a brilliant article to the medical students back in 1927 he was concerned about the interference of technology with the patient-doctor relationship in 1927. so since i started in medicine 40 years ago it's gotten a thousand times worse i mean there's technology everywhere we should have the capacity to fix anybody and do anything Chron- chronic disease is getting worse, we're up to almost $4 trillion a year and we're completely missing the boat. So what's happening, the administrators are actually forcing us not to talk to patients. My hospital did, purchased a very expensive computer program that monitored the doctor's contribution to the profit margin based on procedures that have been documented to be ineffective, number one. Second of all, the, this computerized program measured our production to the profit margin which is based on procedures again. Third of all, um, I have a signed legal contract that says it is not good. It's not normal for a surgeon to talk to his patients. Stop it. <clears throat> I have a legally signed contract that said I would do that. And my partner said, just sign it and do what you want to do. So I did it. I signed the contract, kept talking to my patients, of course. And as all of you know, I have hundreds of patients that have gone to pain-free, their chronic diseases have reversed, anxiety is dropping, they have thrived, Then Bernie has a group called Exceptional Cancer Survivors. But Bernie, I want to tell tell you a story that's happening now, is that in spine surgery, we have a procedure called a lumbar fusion for back pain that has a success rate of 22%. 22% success rate of actually solving a person's back pain. And the administrators love it because it's a very profitable procedure. And then the downside of a failed spine surgery is deadly. So they end up with surgery after surgery after surgery. I have one guy with 29 surgeries in 29 years, did not need the first operation. So a couple of things flipped me out. I walked into a room one day to a patient who's 31 years old. He had a surgery for a stable spinal spondylolisthesis that did not need to be done, paralyzed. That's when I quit. I said, you know something, I cannot do this anymore. But about two weeks ago, and this is the story I wanted to tell you, that I've been on this mode for a long time is that taking away our capacity to talk to patients, and doctors do want to talk to their patients, by the way. That's why we went to medical school. But removing our capacity to talk to patients is deadly, it's damaging, it is below the standard of care. It is a basic healing modality that is not psychological. Then they're forcing us to make these massive decisions of 14-level fusions on the first visit. I don't know anything about the patient. I don't know anything about their life. And we're doing an operation with a 70% complication rate from their neck to their pelvis. So the case I want to talk to you about is a girl who's 26 years old, who by definition has a normal spine, I don't know her exact symptoms before surgery, but I mean she had no rehab, nothing. We don't know anything about her life in the past. Her doctor on the first visit made the decision to do surgery. Guess what they did? She's 26 years old. She has back pain, thoracic pain, but you know, pain moving around her body. So by definition, if you have body, you have if you have pain in your body that's all over your body, it can't be from a structural source. Just guess what surgery, just take a wild guess what surgery they might have done to her. She's 26 years old, beautiful girl, married. Guess what they did?
0: <laughs> Removed her head, right?
1: They close. They, they fused her from her skull to her pelvis. They did an occiput to pelvis fusion in somebody 26 years old. And then they had, she had an internal wound dehiscence, which means the skin collapsed down to the spine, and she ended up with a webbed neck. So she looked like a platypus. So instead of taking somebody like that who needed our help and who could have done really well with the stuff that you and I do all the time, um, we see people that, quote, don't, don't have anything wrong as they feel safe and their body chemistry changes, they go to pain free, right? So on the first visit, I don't know what gives any human being the right to fuse a human being from their skull to their pelvis. How can you turn your spine into a set of scar tissue, bone, and rods and think that's a good idea? There's no basis for it. So... I mean, I see, so I see in three to five cases, not that bad, but pretty similar, a week surgery done on normally aging spines, and I'm watching hundreds of patients go to pain-free with no risk, minimal cost. And that's where I I just got off the train. So that's what I'd like to just emphasize this point, Bernie, is that medicine right now has absolutely penalized us for talking to our patients. You can solve the entire healthcare crisis by tripling or quadrupling the reimbursement for talking to the patients. Anyway, that's why I'm a little bit on fire this week because I was so upset when I heard that story because I have so many patients like her that do so well with such simple interventions and just listening being one of them.
0: Well, you know, when money becomes the issue, you know, talking doesn't make you money. Right. Um, So we got to go do something and then we'll get paid for our time. But it's because we're not caring for people. As I said, we're taking care of diagnoses and diseases and not people. Right. You know, as you said, the key thing is the story. Right. It alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. So the operation doesn't necessarily cure anybody. Uh, nor does the pill or anything else. Oh, and and that's the other thing, how powerful the mind is. Uh, I know one blind lady told her daughter to get her her medication because she was on chemotherapy, nauseated, feeling awful. Her daughter said, get me my Compazine. The daughter brought her a pill and gave it to her, and she felt well in 15 minutes. A few hours go by, she said the symptoms are coming back, get me another pill. This time she had her glasses on. I don't know if I said she was blind, but she had real, without glasses, could hardly see anything. Her daughter gave her the pill. She said, what are you giving me? Well, I gave it to you before. It made you well. She said, this is my coumadin, my anticoagulant. It's not compazine. And the daughter said, well, I saw a C on it. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was the right pill. That shows you the power of the mind. And it changed the mother too, because here she gets the wrong medication and she's perfectly free of symptoms. Right. But see, 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 power people with
1: their money. Right. But that's what's happened in medicine. So we call it placebo. And what I was taught in medical school and residency and actually my practice that if somebody responded to a sugar pill, they must be faking it, right? No. What you want to do when you harness placebo, you're harnessing the body's healing power. Placebo is right. by far and away the most powerful drug that exists. Again, we said this in the first podcast. If your body didn't heal, none of us could survive. So, well, let me you interrupt need- you
0: a minute. Because on my website, I have an article called, called "Deceiving People into Health." One of our sons is a lawyer. He said, "Why do you use words like deceiving people?" I said, "Because I lied to them." Um, Now, these were children, I did a lot of pediatric surgery. The children believed in me and their parents. And my simplest one that I always mention, and works with adults too, you walk in with an alcohol sponge and they know they're gonna have a needle and oh my God. I said, don't worry, we got something new. This not only cleans your skin, but it numbs it. They put something new in with the alcohol. That numbs your skin. You're not going to feel the needle. 80% of the kids said to me, wow, why don't the other doctors use that?
1: Wow.
0: 80% said I felt it, but it wasn't pain. You know what I mean? It was different. And right. that's the part I've learned. So I didn't have any trouble lying to people for their benefit.
1: Well, we also know that fear of pain is inflammatory. The fear is inflammatory. Right. We you know, chronic pain is inflammatory. So we do know that fear of pain actually physically increases the pain. It's, it's not a, again, not a psychological process, not imaginary, but no, we're taught right from the beginning of medical school that somebody responds to placebo. We used to have all sorts of little funny tests we would do. We, we'd try to trick our, we would try to trick our patients into doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And then we would tell workers to come up well, they're just faking it. Well, it's not true. We just were able to recruit the body's healing capacity every physician I know that's been effective in not managing chronic pain, but actually solving chronic pain, the way of our techniques and approaches, but my pain psychologist said years ago, the reason why people are healing is because of me. I'm going, that's not true. I mean, we have all these different techniques and stuff. She says, no, it's you. And so I started thinking about this and I'm not saying that I'm special, but I did listen. And there's now a growing group of clinicians that are seeing a loss of success, treating chronic pain, Every one of them listens to the patient. So going back to the first part of our conversation, it's flat out not medicine to treat only symptoms. It's just not medicine. We are living creatures. We are alive. We do respond to our environment. The environment that responds is what creates symptoms. So if we give medications just to shut down the symptoms and don't go through the root cause of the stresses versus your coping skills, we haven't solved the problem. And what my patients say that heal... They say that the solution is, quote, disturbingly simple.
0: Right. And that's why I began to use drawings. There are people who drew the devil giving them poison as their doctor treating them. There are people who drew an operating room empty, black box. They're lying there all by themselves. Now, how did I get them to change? By visualizing what they wanted. Then a week or two later, they drew a beautiful picture and went through the process without all the side effects. And uh, I have to tell you one that was a funny one, because one boy came in and drew this black picture, the operating room. I said, oh, my God, what's going on with you and your family? He said, what do you mean? I said, this picture is totally black. He said, yeah, I have three older brothers. That's the only crayon they give me. (laughs) <laughs> and then I busted out laughing. But, you know, there's this intuitive battle uh, with, and information because another child, I mean, the parents knew I like drawing so they'd get the kids. She had um, what the mother was sure was a lymphoma because it ran in the family and she had great big neck uh, neck nodes. And the daughter came in with a picture of herself. She was about eight or 10 years old all swollen neck. And then the second picture was this enormous cat with claws an inch long. I said, don't worry. She said, what do you mean? Your cat has, your mother, your daughter has cat scratch fever, not lymphoma. Really? I was so sure. And, and that was true. I mean, I took out one of the nodes and you could see it was infected and we treated her with antibiotics. But that intuitive wisdom that's in people and if we get them, well, once a st- student at University of South Florida, his professor told him he was nuts because he said, I want to do a thesis with actors, give them tragedies and comedies to perform and then I'll draw their blood and show how everything is changed by their feelings and the play. And his professor said, that's ridiculous. Why should it make a difference if you're acting? So the student called me and said, could you talk to my professor? So I talked to him. I said, give the kid a chance, you know, see what happened. So he did. And of course, what happened? In the tragedy, immune function down, stress hormone levels up. In the comedy, the other. And the tragedy was he murdered her husband and they meet. And the other was just, you know, a comedy routine. And it was so obvious what's happening. And they're only acting. So when you get people to act, You know, in a way that will be self healing and induce changes that are healing, it makes all the difference in the world. But that's that's the way stored in our bodies. You know, that's the
1: way our brain works. I mean, we have language. So, doesn't I mean, isn't life one big act in a way?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're all on stage all the time. Right. You know, it's why I act like really a nutcase. I mean, and everybody enjoys me uh, because, I mean, what do I mean by that case? If I go to a Chinese restaurant I order pizza and I do the opposite in the pizza place and he had Chinese food for me one day when I walked in and said, it's my <laughs> said sure, of course. So he and I are lifetime friends. But, you know, when you call into a Chinese restaurant and say, do you, you know, I want to order a pizza today," Oh, Dr. Siegel, how are you? They're smiling and they know, and they're happy to see you because you bring a smile to them. And we have to do that with each other. You know, yeah, life is difficult. I'm not saying it isn't. I've been through plenty of troubles, too. I have aches and pains, but I learned to use what I do with patients. Years ago, I was traveling around the world. I mean, I can't believe what my calendar was like when I looked at it years later. It wasn't a day I wasn't doing something. Surgeon, you know, flying somewhere the next day back to the operating room, all kinds of things. And I developed vertigo and I couldn't get out of bed. Everything's spinning around. And one day I said to myself, Hey, dumbbell, do what you do for your patients. What are you experiencing? And I said, The world is spinning around. Right. You got to slow down and stop all this because your body is telling you stop. This is too much. And how does it get you to stop? You can't stand up. So you can't go places. And boy, what a difference that made. As soon as I said, okay, I'll take charge of the schedule, ease up on it. Boom. All those symptoms disappeared.
1: So Bernie, we'll have to do the podcast here pretty shortly because you, you keep it up all these doors that need to be actually walked through really quickly. But I want to go back to the original topic for this podcast. And that is not talking to our patients is damaging to their health. Right. Right. And you've spent your career, you've traveled around the world, you've written books. I'm doing the same thing. I develop computer programs. I do podcasts. I've written books. I given lectures all over the world. You spent a lifetime doing this. And my wish is, and you've been very inspiring to me personally. My wish is to get that same message out there that you have to talk to your patients and not doing that borders on malpractice. But you've, you spent a lifetime doing this. And I don't know what, from your perspective, or f- but from my perspective with computerized medical records, the administrators and the business of med- medicine have more control over us. It's become way worse. I can tell you a dozen stories. Like you just said about, you know, doctors being, re- I mean, hospital systems do not allow doctors to talk to their patients and they're fired. They're penalized. They're ostracized. All sorts of stuff happens all the time. So it's getting worse. So what's your advice to me right now to try to carry on your legacy of actually treating people as human beings? What what would be your advice to me? What what should I?
0: The advice I give to everybody, do what makes you happy. You know, patients would say, I put a sign on my refrigerator, let your heart make up your mind. You got to do what makes you happy. That's survivor behavior for you and for everybody else. And you see, the other, as I said, is if people see that your patients end up doing better than others, then they begin to shift their belief systems. And you're not seen as so crazy. I played music in the operating room. You're an explosion hazard because they're at explosive gases. In two weeks, everybody felt better. So. Everybody's playing music and nobody's saying you're an explosion hazard anymore to anybody. Um, So if things worked, see, I didn't give lectures and say, this is what we should do. This is, I did them. And then if people saw it worked, they imitated me. And the nurses were often my helpers because they would say to other doctors, uh, you know, Dr. Siegel does this and it works. It helps. They would do it. And then they'd become friends with me, you know, and talk about their patients and what was happening. So I'd say when things work, they're accepted. And and also don't stop having a sense of humor because literally my wife did stand up one-liners when I would lecture to give people a break. You know, you're there for hours and so she'd come in. And one day because of the way the place was set up, it was awkward for me to climb off the stage and take her seat, which we usually did. And she went on stage. So I stayed on the stage. And I couldn't believe the improvement in people's appearance from laughter for 20 minutes. True. So from then on, I made it a point. How do you feel now? Watch what. You... And we have studies showing cancer patients who laugh for no reason every three hours lived longer than those who didn't laugh for no reason. And so it's getting across. I mean, nobody's against success, but if if it, you know, isn't scientific and doesn't make sense, oh, I used to be told to be quiet in all these medical meetings. Siegel, sit down, you know, but if something worked, it was adopted in the hospital. I couldn't get Yale to put in the, you know, in their uh, television videos to show people how to be prepared for surgery. To have other patients who've been through the surgery tell them how they did, how they felt, the recovery. Oh no, it'll cost money if we're gonna have to do that. I said, what if they go home five days sooner? You save the fortune, you know? But the damn brains of executives is all about, no, that'll cost money but what a little save you. And then the best thing that you can wish for is that the doctors, their families, and the administrators in the hospital all get a serious illness. And then, oh, what a change happens. Yeah, I have a book in which it says, this is by a doctor at Sloan Kettering, whose wife developed cancer. He sent me a copy. I didn't know him, but it was called Healing Lessons. In it, it says, and I wanted to apologize to Dr. Bernie Siegel. I called him once. I read that sentence. I said, "What are you apologizing for?" He said, "It says if you keep reading, I apologize for what I thought of you. Now you're an enormous help because my wife has cancer, and you're with us all the time helping us." And and that's the sad part, you know. If we
1: can, well, Bernie, about what thing. Let's just pretend we're talking to a high school sophomore classes in science class. I don't think anybody in high school doubt the fact that laughter helps because you're in, in safety and you're full of oxytocin and dopamine and all these reward chemicals. I mean, it's sort of basic common sense, right? I mean, to me, it's this just high school science class. So laughing is not psychological, again, it's physiological. But somehow we go through medical school where we know physiology extremely well, we get it hammered into our heads. So how come we know it so much better, but as a profession, we forget our high school science class. You know what I mean? It's interesting.
0: Yeah. I think so much of it is ego. Yeah. You, know, you want to be, I'm the doctor, you know, right. the chief. You don't tell a joke. You don't make people laugh because that would be undignified. I've got to be serious. And uh, that I found is the worst thing in the world. Yeah. You got to be yeah. human so people can talk to you.
1: i i make a joke with my wife which isn't so much of a joke is that surgeons don't smile (laughs) yeah well bernie i have another major problem though i don't have a sense of
0: this has really happened at yale i we have five kids one of them well they're all bright but one is really bright and he was bored to be home if it wasn't school so i started And I brought them all into the operating room with me so they knew what I was doing. They all had seen me in in surgery. And I brought him to the operating room and would leave him there for the day so he could be like a little orderly for the nurses. And he was maybe 10 years old. The chief of surgery called me. He said, you don't leave children in the operating room. It's totally inappropriate. I said, meet me at the locker room. (laughs) And thank God he was a human being. He didn't scream back at me. He said, all right. He meets me at the uh, um, locker room. And I said, let's stand here in the doorway and watch what happens. A patient comes in. And, you know, you see some fear in their face. I'm having surgery. And who runs up? Because what Stephen did was run over, grab all the charts and records, and bring them back quickly to the nurse, faster than if they kept pushing the stretcher, so they'd have everything ready when the person showed up. But people, imagine lying on the stretcher, knowing you're going to have surgery, and this 10-year-old shows up whose head is just as high as his stretcher, and you can see this moment of panic. He's going to operate. He's going to pee by my head, you know, and then they bust it out laughing thing. No, no, no. Relax. Stop. It can't be true. You know, that's fine. And the chief of surgery walked away and didn't tell me a child doesn't belong in the operating room. And boy, did I give him credit for his ability to throw his ego away and say, yeah, you're right. That kid's a big help in the operating room. Wow. And, and, you know, and also, you know, I used to say to a lot of hospitals, you want to save money, put pictures of nature on the wall, play appropriate music. We have done these studies. You know, if you put abstract paintings on the hospital room wall versus pictures of nature, the patients who looked at nature all day went home sooner and had less pain. So you save money. But every time I'd suggest something simple like that, or paint the room a different color so it's relaxing, now that'll cost us money, that'll cost us money. I said, but what about the money it saves you? But they I don't do want it. to spend anything.
1: They just don't think that way. Yeah, Bernie, I, you know, I listened to you a few years ago, and my wife actually had me take a stand-up comedy class. Didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, all right, we got to run. Um, so again, I think we should talk again pretty soon because I'm really, really excited about your inspiration, your focus on actually the patient doctor relationship, what true healing is, and somehow my mission. And I agree that I got to pull it back and just enjoy one patient at a time, which I do. You know, just try to bring true healing back into medicine is sort of a mission for a while. So, anyway, Bernie, thank you very much. It's wonderful as well, always.
0: How to get it done. Get everybody to pray that all the executives at medical schools and the chiefs of hospitals will have a serious illness. (laughs) And then they'll change the whole system, okay? Got it, all right. See, the two words are um, the native and the tourist. I should have mentioned that early for you. Keep those in your mind. If you're a native, you know what the experience of illness is. If you're a tourist, you have no idea what they're going through. Right. All,
1: right. All right. Bernie. Nice seeing you. And I will t- we'll talk soon. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Bernie Siegel, for being on the show today and for discussing the importance of listening and understanding the patient as a way to help them have a stronger belief in their own ability to heal. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, Be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com.
0: Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.